JJ. I'm one of the pastors here, the pastors of City Groups, and uh, we are so grateful to have each and every one of you here this morning. Um, for the new faces out here, we're glad you're here. Um, if this is your first time or if you haven't filled out a Connect card yet, uh, that should have been handed to you this morning in your bulletin. Please fill that out. We would love to connect with you at some point, some time. Know that you are here and see how we can be praying for you. If you do have prayer requests, that's also a good place to fill those out. On the back side, there's a spot for prayer requests. So please use that. Put it in the black box on the hospitality table. You can give it to me or one of the other leaders. We'd be more than happy to get that where it needs to go. Um, but this morning, our text is 1 John 3, 11 through 18. 1 John 3, 11, 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not, lo- not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word that we can come together each and every Sunday to worship you and in word and in truth in our seats, with our actions. Lord, we are grateful to be your family. We pray that you would be at work in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal things to us about yourself and about our community here um, that, um, that you would have us to take away and apply in our lives. God, we thank you so much for sending Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. You can sit down. So for the past two months, we have been preaching through John's first letter, and the goal in going through this letter has been to give assurance to you, the people of God, of your eternal salvation, much like John was writing to give assurance to his audience as well, that you may know, I don't know if you know, but that's the subtitle to this series, And it's our hope that by hearing these sermons, that you will rest assured in your standing as a child of God. John gives assurance to his audience through a series of tests. A doctrinal test, a test of authenticity, and a love test. In our text this morning, we come to another love test. This test is about Loving God's family, about how the children of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, 
are supposed to love one another. As I begin to meditate on this passage and on the family of God, the idea of loving one another within a family began to bring about thoughts of my own family growing up. Specifically, my relationship with my sisters, who just happened to be here today. I was a decent older brother, I think, and I loved my two, two younger sisters. But when we were younger, there were times when it became pretty contentious in the Crumloff household. Being the older brother, I would aggravate them and find ways of annoying them and then relentlessly continue to do those things until I got the, reac the reaction that I was hoping for. And most of the time, I could do it pretty well. <laughs> I'm sure that they could share in story after story of times where I aggravated them beyond what they could stand and drove them crazy. There were a lot of struggles between us growing up, and I'm sure that there were many times when they had a hard time loving me. Despite all of our misunderstandings, Fights, annoyances, and whatever else siblings do to get under one another's skin, we still loved each other and continue to do so to this day. Why do I share this with you? Because I want you to look around you at your fellow members of this church and I want you to see a family, your family, God's family. As we go through our passage this morning, I want you to keep in mind this family. The big idea for our sermon this morning is the command for the children of God to love each other reveals the reality of our salvation and leads to generous action. The command for the children of God to love each other reveals the reality of our salvation, and leads to generous action. And I'll use three points to walk us through our text this morning. First is love's command. Second is love's reality. And lastly is love's action. Love's command, reality, and action. So let's begin with love's command. Our text last week ended with John clearly distinguishing the children of God, and the children of the devil. Children of the devil are those who do not practice righteousness and the one who does not love his brother. If he hates his brother, he is in darkness and walks in darkness, as John says in 2.11. In contrast to that, children of God practice righteousness and are righteous, as Jesus is righteous. Chapter 3, verse 7. And in this morning's passage, we see that the children of God love one another. For this message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is a theme that will be unpacked for much of the rest of this letter, that God is love. In fact, it's almost as if John is switching themes from God is light, which we see beginning in chapter 1, verse 5, to God is love. In chapter 4, verse 8, this is not a new theme that he is introducing to his readers. He introduces a, the first love test 
back in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. Along with that, John reminds them that this command is not a new teaching of his. It is one that they have heard from the beginning, one that Jesus taught to him and the other disciples. In John 13, 34, Jesus gives them these words. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Jesus taught John and the disciples. John taught those whom he ministered to. They ministered to others whom received this message and passed it on to the generation after that. And on and on and on until we get to today in 2019. Where the same command is true for us as it was 2,000 years ago. Children of God, love one another. It seems like a simple command. And it is. But it is so profound and its implications are eternal as we'll see in just a bit. This love that John writes of is not any kind of love. This is a love for and between the children of God. A familial love. A love for brothers and sisters in Christ. Which makes sense since John is writing to a church or multiple churches. And like a real family, you don't get to choose who will be in it. That means that it won't be easy to love everyone around you. Love inside the family of God can be a struggle at times. Each person brings their own baggage, their own personalities, and their own mess. We may have different preferences, different political leanings, and different backgrounds. But we are to put those things aside and love one another. John will give us an example of what that love looks like in a few verses. But before that, he gives us a counterexample from Genesis 4 and the story of Cain. He writes in 11 and 12, We should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, if you don't know the story of Cain and his brother Abel, back at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 4, we learn of these two brothers. They were sons of Adam and Eve, and one day, Cain and Abel brought an offering before God. Cain brought the fruit of the ground to the Lord, and Abel brought an offering of the firstborn of his flock, his very best. And God shows favor towards Abel for his offering, which we find out later in Hebrews 11.4, is offered out of a sincere faith. But God did not show favor towards Cain, probably due to evil or wrong motives. This made Cain jealous and caused him to hate his brother. And his hate grew to the point where one day he and Abel were out in a field together and Cain murdered him. Notice how John writes about Cain. He says, who was of the evil one. 
John places Cain's and his motives right in line with a child of the devil. Abel's deeds were righteous. His were not. He responded with hate, which led to murder. This is right in line with Jesus' own teaching. And John 8, 44, he says to the Jews in which he's talking, you are of your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. John is using this example to show the contrasting nature of good and evil. When you get down to the heart of the matter, Cain murdered Abel because the wicked person hates righteousness. Which leads us into our second point, love's reality. John transitions from Cain's murder of Abel to an encouragement to his spiritual brothers and sisters about a terrible reality that they will face. Hate and possibly even persecution. This reality is followed by an assurance and a warning. Look at me with, at verses 13 through 15. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The story of Cain in verse 12 is used as an illustration to help the readers understand what John is saying in verse 13. Cain is used as the prototype for the world. And just as Cain hated his brother because of Abel's righteousness, the world hates the children of God who live lives of righteousness. So it shouldn't have come to anyone's surprise that the world hated them or that they may have faced persecution for their Christ-like obedience. Jesus warns us of the same thing in John chapter 15, verses 17 through 19. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But you are not of the world. But I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. The Antichrist, of which John refers to in chapter 2, which, if you remember, came out of this group of believers, are probably representative of the world to them. Spiritually, they are false prophets of the devil who have gone out into the world, and they are from the world and speak from the world, and the world listens, as we see in chapter 4, verse 5. As the people of Eritas, who are also the children of God, we must recognize that our unity that we have in Christ means that we will also share in his suffering of hate from the world. It should not be a surprise to us that as we share in our love for one another that we receive a Cain-like hate from the world around us. This truth is something that we hardly ever meditate on, but we should. It is a blessing 
to share in the sufferings of Jesus. Hear what Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The reality is that at some point in our lives, that as a Christian, we will suffer some type of persecution for our obedience to Jesus. And that should lead us to rejoice. It should give us, and it should not only cause us to rejoice, it should give us an assurance of our faith and an assurance of our salvation. If you are practicing righteousness, then the world is going to hate you. If that's the case, then you know that you are doing something right. But we are far too eagerly welcomed by the world. It's probably because we have too eagerly run to it. Luke 6, 22 and 26 give biblical, gives biblical evidence for this thought. Jesus says, blessed are those or blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn you, your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Christians are not of this world. That is especially true when ta- talking about our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. John writes, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Now this love that John is writing about is not the cause of our eternal salvation. Instead, it is the evidence of it. Love serves as a confirmation that we have passed from death into life. Becoming a child of God is nothing less than a resurrection out of spiritual death into eternal life. John Stott, in commenting on this passage, writes, Great stress is laid in the New Testament on love as the preeminent Christian virtue, the first fruit of the Spirit, the sign of the reality of faith, and the greatest of the three abiding Christian graces, faith, hope, and love, which never ends, and without we are nothing. Love is the surest test of having life, as it has already been shown to be the test of being in the light. 1 John 2, verse 10. John then contrasts his offering of assurance by giving a warning to those who instead choose to hate. He says that the exact opposite is true for them. That whoever does not love remains in their spiritually dead state. Verse 15 draws that statement out a little bit more and with a little bit more clarity. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John here is echoing echoing the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he teaches, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
To hate is to be a murderer, and no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That doesn't mean that a murderer can't be transferred from death into eternal life. Forgiveness is available to all who repent, including those who hate and including those who murder. Just think of the biblical characters who prove that the grace of God can forgive any sin, including murder. Moses, David, the Apostle Paul. And lastly, we move on to love's actions. Having shown that love is the evidence of life in the child of God, John now sets forth the ultimate example of this love, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Before we look at the last half of this verse, combined with verses 17 and 18, we need to stop and look at Jesus in his actions on the cross. And be reminded it is because of his great sacrifice that the knowledge of true love is even a possibility. Unfortunately, unfortunately, this is where the word love starts to sound out of context in the culture of our day. We misuse the word love for so many different things that this passage doesn't quite hit us like it should. We love our favorite coffee spot or we love our favorite sports team or we love our favorite piece of clothing. I'm guilty of all of those things. The way that love is portrayed in movies and in TV shows, how it's sung about in our music, it has made us desensitized to the actual meaning of the word. John thankfully, thankfully gives us the true example of what love is. The essence of love is self-sacrifice, which has been perfectly manifested in Christ. As Cain has been given as the supreme example of hate, Christ is the presented as the supreme example of love. Life is a person's most precious possession. To be robbed of it is the greatest sin that we can commit against one another. This is probably why you shall not murder is the first commandment in the second table of the law. To give one's life on behalf of another's is the greatest expression of love to one another. So here we arrive at the ultimate contrast. Cain's hatred expressed in murder and Christ's love expressed in self-sacrifice. This isn't only something to be admired, but it's also an example to follow and put into practice. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to do this out of obligation to Jesus because he is ours and we are his. We should follow his example in all things. So just as God's love is so great, we ought to love one and each other. This laying down of one's life isn't exclusively a physical sacrificing of your life for one another. 
Now, it certainly fits in this context, and even at some points in our own lives, it might be necessary that we die for a brother or sister. But elsewhere, the phrase to lay down life refers to taking a risk for another, even putting your life in danger, but not sacrificial death. It's more of a day-to-day, caring-for-each-other's-needs type of love. Love expressed by providing for the material, life-sustaining needs of others. Verse 17 and 18, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the same type of love that Paul writes about in Philippians 2.4. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. It's a love that is put into action. A love that is a hands and feet type of love. A love that is carried out because of the love of Christ and the Holy Spirit and dwelling within us, it makes having an apathetic attitude toward our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need something that should be foreign to us and intolerable to us. Instead, we sacrificially open up our homes. We freely share our food and gladly give up our coat to our family member in need. This is a shift from the cross to our food pantry. As one commentator put it, the call to love is within everyone's reach. He's not calling for martyrs. He's not even asking for Zacchaeus-like generosity. We are not called to give half to the poor, but simply to provide when the opportunity arises, when we see a brother in need, and out of our abundance, when we possess the world's goods. No child of God should ever see a brother and sister in need and turn the other way if they have the means to help care and support that spiritual sibling. If God's love abides, Christians will step up and love in a real, tangible way. And my hope for you all this morning is that you are being encouraged, brothers and sisters, that the assurance of your faith is being strengthened. I hope that as you read these verses that you are seeing yourselves in them. As I read this passage on loving God's family and what that looked like, the more and more I was convinced that I was reading about a Veritas-like community. This church is a loving church that doesn't only love with words or with talk, but in action and truth. There are so many examples that have come to my mind over from our four, few short years together. Meals for families after people have had babies or have been in hospitals. Uh, taking each other's kids when some type of crisis arises and you need to leave right away. Giving generously of your finances to help support the church and to help cover some of the of unexpected costs that people incur. I could keep going on and on and on and on, but we've got to pick up our kids sometime. 
God has blessed our little church with some of the most generous and loving people that I know. If there is a need within the body of Veritas, if it is made known, that need will be met because of the love of God that dwells deeply within each and every one of you. So as we close this morning, I hope that we don't leave here puffed up with pride and hearing all of these wonderful things. Instead, we should fall on our knees and thank God that he loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us, to bring us from death into new life with him, and that he has placed his Holy Spirit inside each and every one of us so that we can love one another, love one another in the same way that he commands us to. Brothers and sisters, let the command to love one another be a true statement for our church. Let our love for each other speak to the assurance that we have in our eternal salvation. And let our love for each other lead to generous actions. Let's pray.